When you think of grief, you probably think of the five stages of grief, which are denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance. Or as I like to call them, weekdays. <laughs> I'm so sorry for you. Uh, this was the grief stage model outlined by Elizabeth Kubler-Ross. But because grief affects everyone differently and it's not a linear process, there's actually quite a few grief models that we can take a look at. I like that. Grief is grief is like a process. It's ongoing. It's an up and down process. It's like a mountain range, not just the mountain. It's it's not Mount Everest. It's the Himalayas. Him, Himalaya? Himalayas. Himalayas. Okay. It's like octopi, maybe, or like octopuses. Octopi. Octopuses Octo is a word. Octopuses. That's a Bond film. Oct <laughs> oh, nice. Good one. Yeah. <laughs> when it comes to Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's model, it's the most well-known. For this episode, we're going to be touching on that as well as diving into the other ones. We're putting uh, grief models head to head like it's some sort of royal rumble. Instead of the Undertaker and Kane, it's just 30 Undertakers arguing that their way of being sad is better than the others. Is that right? Well, typically these models, they're not used to say which one's right, which one's wrong. It's, it's challenging to say this is how grief happens and this is the process because there's so many variables you need to take into account, such as the person's relationship with the person who died, whether the person is experiencing complicated grief or not, whether the death happened traumatically, whatever the case may be. So there's a lot to examine and unpack when it comes to examining a person's grief. When we look at grief, we need to look at the experience holistically and from different perspectives, which is what all these models try to do. Yeah, one hundred percent. This is uh, this is trauma we're talking about. It's life changing, but not for the better, for the worse. It affects everyone differently. Um, I can understand why we try to be so absolute about mm -hmm. something as absolute as death. Mm -hmm. But as we unpack these sort of complex concepts, we want you to be able to follow along in the most natural way possible. So, how about a story? I adore story time mm -hmm. because there are quite a few models that we'll be looking at. We'll focus on three of them in relation to the story. And then at the end, we'll do a quick um, overview of the ones that we did not cover. Excellent. So we'll explain each model, apply them back to moments in this scenario to help us explore this a little bit better. So um, which of the three we're going to cover? We are going to cover Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's. I'm going to interchange between Elizabeth and Ross's throughout the next little bit, just as a heads up. As it's the most well-known, we'll also talk about John Boldby's attachment model and Colin Murray Park's phase model. Those, uh, those certainly sound like models. Okay, let's get started. <laughs> <laughs> so in your, uh, this, in your dreams, yes. Right? <laughs> so the story we're going to use is actually taken from Marilyn Haddad's the Ultimate Challenge, Coping with Death, Dying, and Bereavement. Uh, I'll obviously put my spin on it as I read it to stop it from being really depressing. So it'll so just be slightly depressing. Mm-hmm. The best way to be. Wonderful. Edgar Bevins had been happily married to Samantha for 14 years. They had no children, but they didn't mind too much because they said they were enough for each other. Mm. <laughs> what was that sound? <laughs> Mm. <laughs> I think this 
the lack of children here might also be the reason for the aforementioned happy marriage. However, because this is a podcast about death and not Disney endings, on a bright winter's morning, everything was about to change. While she was driving to work, Samantha's car was hit by a truck that skidded on ice and she was fatally injured. Edgar was already at work. He picked up the phone and heard someone tell him what had happened and to come to the hospital right away if he wanted to say goodbye to his wife. He hung up the phone in a daze. This must be some sort of sick joke, he thought, quickly dialing his wife's cell phone number. When she didn't answer, he said to himself, "Ugh, she forgot to turn it on again. How many times have I told her? Classic Samantha, right? One of his co-workers, seeing him behaving in an uncustomary fashion, asked him what was wrong, and Edgar told her. The co-worker became alarmed and phoned the police, only to find that the call had not been a prank at all. She took Edgar's arm gently and told him that she would drive him to the hospital. He angrily resisted, claiming that he had no need to go to the hospital. His wife was fine. The co-worker finally prevailed and took Edgar to the emergency entrance of the local hospital, where they were met by police officers and a physician who hurriedly ushered Edgar, still protesting, into a small cubicle. There, Samantha lay dying. Edgar fell to his knees on seeing her and demanded that the doctors do something. The emergency ward physician informed him that nothing could be done, that Samantha's injuries would soon prove fatal. Within an hour, Samantha had died. The medical personnel let Edgar stay with her body for as long as he wanted, but within the hour, Edgar's sister, notified by the co-worker, arrived and led Edgar away. The next few days passed with Edgar scarcely aware of them. He was conscious of having gone to the funeral parlor to arrange Samantha's funeral and of people coming back and forth to his home. He couldn't remember eating or sleeping, but he supposed he must have. The only thought in his mind was getting through the funeral in as calm as a manner of possible for Samantha's sake. After taking a week off work, he was allowed five days by his employer. You all know how we feel about five days by now. <laughs> he returned to work and the sympathy of his co-workers. His concentration was faulty at work, though, and he made mistakes on some procedures that he knew far too well. The employer was understanding and asked little of him for the first month after Samantha's death. After that, however, the sympathy started to fade. After all, the company needed to make money, not carry someone who couldn't do the job. Edgar's co-workers also began to get frustrated at him, having to do so much work for him that he couldn't get done himself. But Edgar noticed little of this. He still felt like a man in a trance. Edgar's sleep was haunted by nightmares of Samantha's accident, and he woke up screaming and crying. His thoughts went to her final moments constantly, and he felt great rage at the doctors who had, in his opinion, not done what they could to save his wife's life. His rage also extended to the truck driver, whom he referred to as a murderer, even though the police said that the truck driver himself was not at fault, and to the city officials who had not ensured that the roads were properly salted to free them of ice. Occasionally, with feelings of great guilt, he felt angry with Samantha, thinking that she shouldn't have driven to work that day or that she must have been inattentive to driving conditions. He also reproached himself for not having driven her to work that day and also felt that he should have found a way to make her car safer. He found himself resenting the way other people continued to live their lives as if nothing had happened. In addition to this, Edgar usually forgot to eat because he had no appetite and food was tasteless to him. Sometimes he had frightening heart palpitations and feelings of choking, but these passed after a few dreadful minutes, so he didn't consult the physician, thinking he should just tough it out like a man. After six months, Edgar's anger started to fade and he began to feel nothing but despondent. He didn't 
admit to anyone that he spent hours in the evening looking at pictures of his life with Samantha and holding a sweater that she'd loved. Sometimes he fell asleep holding the sweater to his face. Every blonde woman on the street made his heart jump. He thought it's Sam, only to lead to this profound disappointment and dejection as he realized it wasn't her and it never would be. On every meaningful day that he and Samantha had celebrated, such as Victoria Day, when they had always watched a display of fireworks, Edgar felt the grief again as if the death had just occurred. A year after Samantha's death, people were starting to say to him that it was time for him to move on and perhaps start dating again. After all, they pointed out, he still hadn't managed to teach himself how to cook or keep a home the way Samantha had. Perhaps a new woman would be helpful to him. Okay, quick pause in the story. Gender stereotypes much? Yep. A little bit? Anyways, this type of conversation left Edgar feeling incredulous. Didn't they understand the idea of dating another woman, of forgetting Samantha and replacing her, was abhorrent to him, and he felt that he would never love again? But maybe people were right. He didn't have to learn how to cook and do laundry properly. How is he surviving? When his sister gave him some lessons in basic cooking and housekeeping, Edgar found in his astonishment that it wasn't so difficult and that he might even become a good cook. He felt some self-satisfaction at this and said silently, See, Sam, I'm doing it. Not bad, eh? And then, so sexist. So bad. Yeah, I'm sorry about your wife, but the hell, Edgar? How are you alive? How are you alive? How have you been managing to use the toilet without like a potty trainer device? Like what is going on? The year after Samantha's death had been one of unremitting pain for Edgar, and every holiday, every anniversary, seemed to pierce him anew. At least he could concentrate a little better now, and he was doing much better at work. His sleep was a little better too, with fewer nightmares. He had avoided the cemetery where she was buried. But on the first anniversary of her death, he wanted to go to her grave to place some flowers. Standing over her grave, Edgar found it impossible to believe that a year had passed and that he had survived. There had been the proverbial three steps forward and two steps back all along. Some days had not been too terrible and other days had been unbearable. But he could honestly say that as time progressed, he had fewer bad days and more good days. And that's really what this is about. Maybe, just maybe, he could see light at the end of the tunnel, even though neither he nor life would ever be the same. On the second anniversary of Samantha's death, Edgar put away most of his photographs of her, keeping the one he liked the most on display in his bedroom. He thought that perhaps at this time to cook dinner for a few people who had been particularly helpful and supportive to him. So he called his sister and his co-worker, who had taken him to the hospital that terrible day, inviting them and their families to dinner the following week. Edgar enjoyed planning and cooking the dinner, and almost amazingly to him, the dinner was a great success with good food and good conversation. They talked about how the last two years had gone by with difficulty, and they laughed about how Samantha would be so surprised at Edgar's newfound cooking prowess. Sharing memories of Samantha brought smiles to Edgar's face, and he suggested his co-worker, with whom he and Samantha had played bridge with, that perhaps she could help him find a new bridge partner. She doesn't have to play the same way Sam did, he said. I'll learn to figure out her way. The end. Oh, the end. Huge. The end of Samantha. Because she's dead, guys. I feel like that was apparent after the first anniversary of her death. But it's also the beginning of another chapter for Edgar. Wonderful save. Fantastic. Mm-hmm. So when it comes to the story, there's a lot to unpack with it. The first thing that comes to mind is 
when is this all set? We've got a man named Edgar, like it's the 1950s. You've got traditional gender roles, like it's the 1940s. Or I would Al- I would argue 20s, but yeah. Yeah, yeah. Or Alberta today. Um, he, he, but then he uses a mobile phone. And then he uses the word uncustomary like it's 1846. Like, just baffling. The second thing is, it takes a woman to die in a fiery car crash before a man will, and I quote, cook and keep the home. Christ, do better, boys. Looking at you, Edgar. Jokes aside, this story is the perfect example of grief. It's honest. It's not sugar-coated. Edgar resents people he shouldn't. His employers stop giving a crap. His friends tell him to move on. But even through all of this, he eventually manages to process the loss of his wife. And it also acknowledges that he still feels grief. It doesn't, you know, it it understands that it never fully goes away, which I think is really important. Uh, As someone who has been relatively sheltered from the grieving process, this story, when I first read it, put a lot of perspective for me. Yeah, when when it came comes to like the gender role specifically, what they were trying to do with the story was capture how when you're in a relationship with someone, particularly if it's like a partnership, when one of them passes away, the roles kind of switch. So whether he was more accustomed to the cooking or the cleaning, whatever the case may be, he would have had to start to take on maybe like the financial role of housekeeping, like making mm-hmm. sure the bills were paid. And that's very common in bereavement when you lose a spouse. Um, so that's what I thought of when they were explaining that. Okay, so it's almost like they're trying to fill a void in a sense. Yeah, exactly. Not necessarily a void. It's more so, so for example, there's a study that was conducted and it basically said when you start to live with someone for so long, when you're partnered with someone for so long, you associate knowledge that they would know and you would go to them to find it. So... For example, with cooking, if you didn't have to do the cooking, you don't really have to think about it. You would just go to them and they would take care of it. Or right. it can be as small as your keys. If you always misplace your keys, but they always know where it is, where, where the keys are, you would know to go to them to find it. And when someone in that situation passes away, when your partner passes away, it's actually been shown that it's almost as if you have a brain injury in the sense, like your brain mm. literally forgets where the keys are, where certain paperwork is placed, like a magnitude of examples, but it's essentially like a piece of your brain just goes away. Um, So I think that's what they were trying to capture with that section, at at least attempting to. That being said, this was written only 20 years ago in the early 2000s. So I'm not too surprised with how they represented women. As someone who is somewhat familiar with the grieving process, who is familiar with the grieving process, I did appreciate the fact that they highlighted grief is never truly over, to your point. It's something that you can progress from, but you can never truly leave it behind. It's something that you'll carry with you throughout life. And if you think you're over it and you're not dealing with it, it's that is called repression, my friends. A repression gang. <laughs> Um, as sad as this is to say, a part of me also appreciated the mention of their coworkers getting frustrated with him for leaving work undone. It really highlights the fact that unless people learn about this type of topic or this type of content, they don't get it until they go through it themselves, which is frustrating. Uh-huh. And at the end of the day, it's also part of the reason why we're doing this podcast so people can kind of understand whether they go through it or not, 
what someone goes through when they're experiencing grief or a loss? Yeah, I mean, it, it really is. That's why we're doing this. The more death literate the world becomes, the more we can help each other through it. Mm-hmm. So is it time to apply these grief model Snapchat filters? <laughs> Are you still using Snapchat? What Snapchat? Mm-hmm. Okay. To answer your question, yes. The first grief model we're going to look at in the context of the story is Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's stage model. Elizabeth first opened up the dialogue around death and dying at a time when the conversation was considered taboo. Mm-hmm. As we mentioned in the last episode, uh, it looks like she was challenging the notions of the forbidden death idea. Yes, 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 yes. She actually began to publish the results of interviews she conducted with dying people in the 60s. This resulted in her creating her model, which is meant to be a hella general guide to the emotional trajectory of someone grieving. Yeah, and it's the one that everyone knows, or at least the only one that I know for now. Right. So the first stage of her model is called denial. This is where the bereaved person is almost refusing to accept the death and even chooses to ignore it in some cases. Whether they truly believe in this denial or not, people in this stage may feel isolated and alone because they're unable to talk about the experience openly. It's as if they're unable to come to grips with reality by any means. Exactly. And what stuck out to me was how seemingly ridiculous his denial seemed from an outside perspective. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You knew what had happened to his wife, as did I. So it's easy for us to say, oh, why did he make so many excuses? It's obviously not a joke. But... That's coming from the perspective perspective of rationality. And you're robbed of that when you're grieving. It changes the way you think and act. It's like with physical trauma. Emotional trauma can basically cause you to go into fight or flight mode. The amygdala in your brain is responsible for this response. So you're either fight aggressively or flight passively. Deny the truth to protect yourself. Edgar didn't want to see his wife like this. And he put up all these mental barriers, whether he intended to or not. Yeah, exactly. And particularly when he said, do something, was yelling at the doctor. That's an example. And also just not believing the phone call when he got it, right? Mm. Uh, Another thing about denial is the length. What? Denial is the longest river in the world. The second stage in Elizabeth's model is anger. This anger can be directed at family members, nurses, doctors, and other medical staff. The blame game, as seen here, is quite common. Yeah, so Edgar became really aggressive towards the medical staff, uh, the truck driver, the police. What I think this comes down to is needing to reassert control and focus your emotions in one direction. Yeah, exactly. There, there's so many supercharged emotions that Edgar is feeling at this point and people going through bereavement in general that blaming someone else almost paints a villain in the scenario that you can focus on through the grief and to reassert control over the situation in a sense. Yeah. And then he also directs this anger at people around him who continue to live their lives or those who tell him to move on. Yeah, I mean, I'd be upset too if people were just telling me to just basically get over it. Uh, whether it's a traumatic event or otherwise, um, because you can't really tell someone just to get over something yeah, if it's true. affecting them. Yeah, like emotions, bro. Yeah, and this comes back to the conversation we were having about death literacy. 
not just helping out the bereaved, but those around them. Mm-hmm, exactly. The next stage is called bargaining. Bargaining is done to attain their needs and feel as if they're gaining more time and control in their lives, similar to the anger that was expressed with the doctors wanting to get more control over the situation. It's also tied into the denial stage since this clamoring for control is not them accepting the situation, rather pleading for the return of normal pre-grief life. Yeah, there's a few moments of bargaining here. Um, first, the as long as I don't go to the hospital, Samantha's fine mentality. Mm-hmm. And then he almost pleads, he literally bargains with the medical staff to, to do something mm-hmm. when he finally does accept the situation. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The the next stage is depression. The source of this feeling can stem from feelings of remorse over past deeds, anxiety over permanent separation from the deceased, and going into that unknown and the present pain and weakness being experienced. Yep. Looks like our boy Edgar was depressed the moment reality set in. So basically the moment he left the hospital, the loss of awareness and time, sleep and eating disturbances, uh, feelings of hopelessness, like all of that we saw in the story. Yeah, it's it's terrible. Just loss in general is so, so traumatic. The upside, if you can call it an upside, is that people do at some point feel acceptance, which is the final stage of this model. This isn't seen as someone saying, hey, I'm totally chill that my husband died. Instead, it's more so saying, my husband died and I know I'm going to be okay. Yeah, and... With the last year or so being the way it actually has been, I'd add to that and say, right now I'm not okay and that's okay. Mm-hmm. A yeah. big part of acceptance is not just acceptance of the loss itself, but acceptance of one's traversal, I guess, like journey through mm-hmm. this grieving process. Edgar in the story got to some level of acceptance in his life and began to move on. He started doing better at work, uh, learned to cook, hosted dinners, even contemplated finding a new bridge partner. To me, that kind of opens up a almost a romantic progression for him as well. Mm-hmm. Exactly, exactly. And, and yeah, there, there's like a positive ending, quote unquote, positive ending to the story. I do really want to drive home the point that with this model specifically, these stages are not linear. So you won't go from stage one, stage two to stage three, and then end up in acceptance. Even in acceptance, quote unquote, that phase, you will still feel moments of anger. You will still feel moments of depression. You will still feel moments of bargaining even, um, whatever the case may be, because there's no one way to grieve. So one week you can feel the acceptance and then the next week you'll go right back to feeling angry and that's completely normal. It is what it is. I know, for example, there's days where I'm super accepting of my mom's death and then there's other days where I'm just so angry and it's, it's, it's how grief works. It's an ever-changing process. Mm-hmm, exactly. The next model that we're going to look at is by John Bowlby and his attachment model. He's known for his work revolving around attachment theory, which specifically revolves around the bonds children create with their primary caretakers in early life. <laughs> you say children, but this literally sounds like our friendship. What? I literally, like, I video called you the, what was it, the other night, a week ago, at midnight, in a panic, because one of my headphones <laughs> was stuck in my ear. Oh, oh, my God. That would still be in there if I hadn't given you the expert advice of 
pushing it out from behind. It's not, it wasn't that simple, guys. It was. For anyone that's listening, if you ever get your earbuds stuck in your ear, press behind your ear very gently and it will gradually come out of your ear. You're welcome. Still a, still a terrifying process. You are fine. I'm very proud of you. When John was creating this model, he coined the term defensive exclusion. This is the cognitive tendency to block information processing that people feel threatened by or think will be painful for them. Something that Amo's probably very familiar with doing. Are you referring to my use of humor to deflect difficult topics? You? Using humor as a deflection? She's right, guys. I do this a lot. No witty comments here for me on this one. For reference, see the earlier caretaker comment. And the days of the week. John Bowlby applied <laughs> the children theory of attachment on adults and came to the conclusion that there are four stages adults go through. The first one is called numbness. This is when the death is first made known to the individual. This is when the person just doesn't process what's happened. So that'll be the dazed, confused feeling that Edgar felt right after getting the phone call, mm -hmm. or uh, even that blur of time right around the time of her funeral. Exactly, exactly. The, the next stage is called yearning and searching. And that's me on Tinder at 3 a.m. 3 a.m., 8 a.m., 9 p.m. I feel like there's no time limit on that. Um, just like Ammo, desperately swiping on Tinder, this is where the bereaved experiences separation anxiety, the fear experienced with the loss of an attachment figure. I feel so called out today. <laughs> <laughs> going to get so much better for you. This stage is where the person might also use defensive exclusion to block out any information that they think will hurt them. They yearn for the deceased and feel only frustration when being unable to reunite. Yeah, and Edgar felt this when he was thinking every woman with blonde hair on the street was Samantha, uh, basically wanting to be reunited with her. Again, logically speaking, his brain goes into primal mode and it just forgets she's gone which is why he urgently goes after these people and then he gets let down. Uh, and then, like the story says, not only does he re-experience that grief, the realization that she's gone, it's just like getting that phone call all over again. And that's the bit of, of the story that got me because I've seen people who went through bad breakups actually do similar sort of things. Yeah, it, it goes back to it's a loss in general, whether it's a loss from a person dying or it's a loss of a relationship because you're no longer with that person or even a loss of a friendship. And this can also, keep in mind, this can extend into the realm of loss of a job or loss of an opportunity. Um, it's just the feeling of loss can create these stages to occur. Mm -hmm. um, what examples of bad breakups do you have? Can you share? Just like bad breakups, but the... The reactions that I would see mm -hmm. are very similar to Edgar. This sort of logic be damned, that must be them, and then it's not. Yeah. It's just, it's, there's so many parallels. Yeah. So humans are so interesting. Also, the brain mm. is so wonderful and at the same time, so ridiculous. <laughs> the next stage is called disorganization and despair. I feel like you're very familiar with all these settings. Wow. For, for different reasons. Wow. 
This is a stage where the bereaved person feels his or her life is totally up in the air, complete disaster, no control, just uprooted, and they're in a state of confusion while experiencing immense sadness and grief. The fourth and final stage is called reorganization. This is where, as time passes, the person shapes a new concept of the world and their identity and place in it, and the new roles and skills that they're ready to tackle or take on. Edgar went through a lot of disorganization and despair when his work problems persisted and his nightmares continued, along with issues eating, if I remember correctly. Mm -hmm. But he, you know, he gets his shit together and he starts to take on new roles in life. Mm -hmm, Exactly. With this model, stages three and four, I want to also keep in mind, they're a little vague, as we know. Trust us, we know. Um, John's greatest contribution to the understanding of this type of bereavement model is the process of grief as it relates to separation anxiety. So that's what he really focused on. Yeah. And to be honest, it's hard to be granular with these models if if everyone's experience of grief is different. Exactly. The third model we're going to cover is Colin Murray Parks. He created the phase model. Yes, and then famously when asked about it by his own mother, he said, it's not a phase, mom. (laughs) (laughs) This is who I am as a person. That's it. His entire premise was that experiencing bereavement is very similar to receiving an actual physical injury, like you said earlier, meaning he took a more biological approach to bereavement by recognizing the physical stress reactions that a person goes through. Yeah, I like this one, to be honest. Um, The scientific approach always helps me get on board. Yeah, exactly. His whole idea was that if a complication arose, as with a physical injury, the result may be fatal. Ominous. The first phase in this model is called numbness. Lots of numbing in these models and rituals. This is where the emotions are blunted. This is considered adaptive because it allows the bereaved to make final arrangements such as funeral arrangements and end-of-life care and planning. Mm. So it's almost as if the body's going into uh, autopilot to protect itself. Mm-hmm, exactly. Edgar has encountered a problem and needs to shut down. <laughs> so he was, he was blunting his emotions when he was denying his sort of grief experience. Uh, we're not showing any emotion. Then with the funeral arrangements, he just literally goes into autopilot for a few days. Mm-hmm, exactly. And also, of course, it depends on gender plays a role because of still there's gender stereotypes in terms of men keeping it together in certain mm. ways as opposed to women essentially being allowed to be more emotional. Mm. Um, so yeah, people's autopilot may look completely different. And that is a perfect example of also showing, though, that grief is not linear. He experienced that phase in two different points in time. Yeah, no, that's wild. Mm-hmm. The second phase is called searching and pining. This is where people feel episodes of anxiety and intense grief. This is where interest in the outside world is limited and the bereaved only thinks of the loss of their loved one. Anger is felt in the stage, similar to Elizabeth's model. Though with Collins, he believes that if anger is present, it's actually a sign that there's a complication in the grieving process. Well, he has nightmares about Samantha. Mm -hmm. So he finds comfort in sort of shutting himself off, uh, holding her sweater. And then he feels like he's just never going to love ever again. Is that the search and finding phase? Yep, pretty much. Yeah, like looking, just looking for it. 
looking mm. for her. The, the next phase is depression. It's nice to know that depression is the one consistency you can find in these models. That's true. I know a lot of models with depression. It's a really toxic industry. You don't know any models. This is a very special episode. We're, uh, we're actually going to experience grief firsthand by moving Maria into the next phase of existence. And then we will go through these models ourselves. I dare you to try. <laughs> this depression phase is where, unsurprisingly, the individual recognizes the inability to regain the lost loved one and then starts to experience despair and profound sadness. This is the time that Colin believed the person needed to change their worldview and make changes to how they handled their life. This is basically the phase where the individual also recognizes that they need to change their view of the world. Mm, so again, like the sweater thing or the dejective feeling of like realizing that he's never having Samantha back. Mm -hmm. And the feeling as if he'll never love someone again. Mm. The, the final stage in this model is called recovery. Oh yeah. Yeah. Like that God awful Eminem album. It's, it's not his best work. She, Don't. Uh, she, she loves Don't. Eminem. She loves Eminem. Yes. Yes. I'm just saying, I love me some Slim. Yes, you do. But any album that Eminem raps, like the Aliens from Mars Attacks, is one of the bad ones. Um, that's not how it sounds. Bro, we, listen to that. Okay, it was, he was going through. Really? The final stage is recovery. What? Like me. Can't call it recovery if he's, you know, still going through it. He was recovering. The oh, final stage is exactly the final stage is recovering. And it's where the bereaved person makes adjustments to the world and that are public facing, not just internalizing the ideas. So for example, like when he was learning how to essentially cook for himself and reincorporate others into his life, his healing may have left scar tissue, but it's complete. Gotcha. Yeah. I like this model a fair bit. Uh, so these are three models that we've explored in details, but obviously we don't have time for all of them because Maria refuses to pay our wonderful editor. But we can give you a quick rundown of them for sure, right? Yes, we can. There's six additional ones that we haven't touched on that I know of at least. Uh, one of which is the task model, which was created by William Warden. William outlines four tasks that the bereaved must go through to process their grief, which are accepting the loss, work through the pain of grief, adjust to an environment without the deceased, and emotionally relocate the deceased and move on with life. Mm. I like the more proactive approach. It's like the 12 labors of Hercules. Mm -hmm. it's Although it's, it's a little oversimplified. It's literally one, two, three, four, fine. Or maybe we're just really bad at explaining things. It's it's challenging to explain these also in such a condensed form because there's so much to unpack in each of these sections. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, his, his model looks at it from a task perspective and it's just these simple tasks, simple quote unquote, that people have to go through. Another model is by Dennis Class and his model is of continuing bonds, which focuses on the type of attachment someone has with the deceased. Yeah, another example of continuing bonds is Octopussy. I've is that so one, much today. <laughs> is that one similar to John Bell? 
Yes, they're very similar because they both look at attachment theory for their models. The difference with this one, though, is that it also focuses on how and if the bereaved can adjust and redefine their relationship with the loved one that will last throughout their lifetime. How so? So this can be an example. You visit your loved one at their gravesite and speak with them, which brings you a sense of comfort. You can also keep items of theirs that remind you of them, such as jewelry or even their clothes. For example, I know I have a ton of jewelry from my mom that I keep, thankfully, because uh, my dad decided to keep a ton of stuff. Another example can be that you continue to do rituals that you guys did together, such as baking, photography, art, bicycling, whatever you guys did together. So it's reframing the relationship that you had previously in a way that makes sense after they've died. Mm. And do you ever speak to your mom or like continue her rituals? When I was younger, I spoke more often, I'd say. And I also visited her grave quite a bit. Mm. As I got older, I want to say other priorities, as bad as that may sound in terms of visiting. Um, But I still go occasionally, maybe like a couple times a year. In terms of rituals, I want to say my dad may keep up with that more than I do just because she passed away when I was a kid. So there weren't necessarily any rituals. Mm -hmm. I have been told, though, that were very artistic in the sense of she was always doing something creative. She used to do ceramics. And as you know, I do collage and painting and Mm -hmm. several other things. So people have mentioned, at least people in my family, kind of keeping that essence of her alive through what I do. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. The other brief model that we can look at is by Simone Schumann Robinson's. Two-track model of bereavement. Two-track. Du. Do. Dio. Dio is Greek. Yeah. So Simone said that the other models failed to look at the complexity of bereavement. And that other... Yeah, she was all up in it. In (laughs) the sense that uh, the only models only looked at how people ended up functioning in the world, not how the changing relationship with the deceased impacted their grieving process. So we've officially approached the postmodern era of grief models. Postmodern, yes, exactly. This this idea led to the two-track model. The first track focuses on how stress from bereavement impacts a person's ability to function and maintain relationships. The second track focuses on how the loss influences the relationship a person has with the deceased, which can trigger unexpected emotions, thoughts, or other feelings. Think of it as a fuller approach to understanding the butterfly effect of a death on a person. Whoa. Mm -hmm. See, this one sounds legit. So we 100% have to do a grief model part two and go into this one in more detail, right? Definitely. Look, looking at you, look at my eyes. Plan straight ahead. Mm-hmm. We're good. We're good. Catherine Sanders' integrative model is built on the existing models to develop one that looks at both biological and motivational aspects of the bereavement process. She considered her model an integrative one. Mm-hmm. So, like, it's like a best of then. With each model, you keep saying, "This is the best one. This is the best one." No, I said it's like a best of, sure. like a, like a sure. compilation. Now, this is what I call Grief 45. <laughs> Did you guys have those albums here? I don't it's like, know. Now that that's sounds what like I call an music. Intro to a, that sounds like an intro to a porn video with, like, really good soundtracks. 
<laughs> now this here, it's like a what is it? You know the the kind of the the DJ at like really shitty like strip clubs. Like coming up on stage right now is not. I don't know. There's I. This is Andy. Yeah, Candy, here's the kind of grief that she's experienced. <laughs> she lost her oh brother god. in Iraq. Oh my god, that's so bad. He was a soldier, not the other side. I feel like this is a niche. Okay, we're different business that model idea. Her model, Catherine's model, drew ties between the mental and physiological responses that someone experiences when going through the grief process. This was because she believed that people go through an emotional reaction to grief as well as a physiological one. Mm. Yeah, I'm all for approaching grief in a a physiological fashion because there's so many physical changes that the body can go through because of Mm -hmm. like like emotional or any sort of situational stimuli. So real physical changes, like these are out of your control, hormones, neurotransmitters, Chemical imbalances, dopamines, dopamines. Dope. Dope. <laughs> Is that what you're going to do? <laughs> gang, gang, gang. Um, it also can include increased heart rate or increased, yeah, as you mentioned, increased hormones, which are being produced in the body. She broke down her formulation of the grief process into five points. The first one being shock. The phase where the body is flooded with adrenaline and other homeostatic changes to get the person through the initial grieving period, also known as the fight or flight response. Second is awareness of loss. This is where the parasympathetic nervous system responds to decrease the fight or flight responses and the adrenaline and other hormones start to wear off. This is when you start to feel the emotions. That's a sound bite right there. This is when you start to feel the emotions. This that was my crappy strip club DJ voice. This is awareness, and this is when you start to feel the emotions. <laughs> Welcome to your Friday night slow jam. <laughs> Conservational withdrawal is the third point. This is where the bereaved person pulls away from others and feels despair for no longer being able to be with the deceased again. The end of this phase is interesting as it's where the individual decides whether they'll A, move forward, B, act as if nothing has happened, just maintaining the status quo, or C, give up. (laughs) Very positive. (laughs) Sanders highlights that individuals are not passive when it comes to their grieving process. They actually play an active role in how they want to respond, whether they think they are or not. Oh. Mm -hmm. The fourth point is healing. This is the time where the grieving person chooses to move forward. Based off of their decision, they then assume more control in their life and form new connections. Again, this goes back to the decision that they made, whether they move on in a specific way, act as if nothing happened, or decided to give up to a certain degree. The final phase is renewal. This is where the pain has mostly subsided. There will still be moments of pain experienced as well as sadness, mainly around anniversaries or key dates. Okay, so we have shock, awareness, conservation, withdrawal, healing, and renewal. Mm -hmm. Okay, so those are the days of the week, not what I said at the start. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But this is cool because this has the directness of the task model, Mm -hmm. but it also allows more space for emotional relapses, which will happen. 
Mm-hmm. It highlights that again, it's the process, but it's not linear. Like it, yeah. it reflects that, which I really appreciate. Margaret Strobe's model is called dual process model of coping with bereavement. Another dual process. So last time I saw this many models having duos, I was like 200 euros lighter in Amsterdam, bro. You have no model friends. Why are you lying to people? (laughs) No. That's not what that joke was about, Maria. Having threesomes, whatever, having sex. Yeah, but like. Oh my God, you bought prostitutes? I didn't really. It's a bit, guys. I didn't. You bought prostitutes? No, I, it was a joke. Now you don't judge. This is a safe space. Is this why you're so familiar with the, the strip club DJ voice? The Lord is my shepherd. Uh, nah, nah, nah. Um, I just, I'm just a funny dude, bro. You're funny, all right. Ha, 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 ha. Ha, ha. Um, similar to Sanders' two-track model, Margaret developed two forms of orientations, quote, that people encounter after experiencing a loss. She named the first orientation loss orientation, where people focus on the individual's loss, while the second orientation is called restoration orientation. The restoration orientation refers to the focus on day-to-day living. I mean, I get it. It's no Catherine Sanders integrative model, but I get it. (laughs) Strobes and Sanders' model are similar in that they both have a stream of focus revolving around the relationship with the deceased person, and the other focuses on everyday living and relationship management. Uh, we're putting all these in the show notes, right? Because this is a lot. And I've got the script that totally doesn't exist right here in front of me. Yeah, there there is a lot. We'll be sure to do that. There's uh, no death literacy without death literature. The final model that I'm familiar with is by Teresa Rando's six R's model. What does having six R's have to do with grief? <laughs> Everything. Perfect butt of the joke. Teresa worked extensively in the area of complicated mourning, meaning her model focuses on the impacts on the bereaved loved ones when a death is either sudden, violent, or unexpected. This can include homicides, suicides, or deaths caused by natural disasters. Well, these are getting really specific. Yeah, hers is pretty elaborate and complicated. It deals with complicated grief. And because it's complicated, we want to avoid sitting here for multiple hours going through it. Say complicated one more time. Complicated. Complicated. So that sounds like another future standalone episode. Oh, you know it, bud. A perfect. <laughs> we're, we're teasing our future more than Iron Man 2 did. I uh, miss <laughs> Iron Man. He, it's Marvel. He'll come back. Alternate universes. Yeah. Yeah. We we have a bunch of models that you've we've learned about today and it'll help you get through that loss. It's okay. True. Uh, quick question. So of the models that we've talked about today or elements of models, have you been able to identify any with your grief journey Ooh, so far? So interesting. I wanna say, and this is gonna sound so cliche, I really like Elizabeth's model because it just covers everything, mm-hmm. especially when it talks about the fact that it's not linear. It's just okay. not a linear process and you go through everything. Um, I personally, just on a personal note, I really enjoy Holland's because of the a- approach that he takes where a loss is almost as if it's a physical injury, 
Mm. Partly, not partly, I guess partly because of the fact that, for example, when someone breaks their arm, people are like, oh my God, they can see it. Let's help you fix your arm. Let's fix that. It's like very visible. And people take that kind of a bit more seriously as opposed to grief. It's more of like an internal conversation you're having in your head. Like it's going on, going on in your mind and people, again, similar to what Edgar went through, don't get it. After a month of working, his coworkers were annoyed that he wasn't getting work. Um, but if we look at it from the perspective of it being almost as if it's a physical injury, yep. I want to say people would respect it, understand it. I don't know what word to use, but they would just kind of acknowledge it better. Yeah, because it, it makes it tangible, right? Exactly. You know, that's exactly. also the thing with why some people don't take mental health as seriously because it's mm-hmm. you can't hold it in a, in a sense. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So on that note, tell us which model do you relate with the most? Is there one that we missed? Do you want us to explore one in more detail? Let us know. Same grief time, same grief channel. This is why Maria does the outros. <laughs> yeah, I enjoyed that. That was fantastic. Thank you for listening to this episode of Philotuma Life. You can find us online at Philotuma Life. That's P-H-I-L-O-T-I-M-O-L-I-F-E. Remember to subscribe now to join us as we breathe some life into the conversation around death.